pray. <clears throat> Lord God, again, we ask you to be with us. We ask that you would open up your holy word to us and help us see how relevant these words written long ago are to us today. And that when these things were, were penned by your inspiration, you knew that they would still be speaking to our situation here in 21st century America. Apply this to our lives, help us to change and to live this out, and help us to be so thankful for your continual faithfulness. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in the news, there's been a lot of uh, talk and concern about the, the Zika virus and what that does when it's passed on to children. But today we're going to be talking about something else that's insidious that can be passed down to the next generation or taken on by the next generation. And we're going to call that second generation syndrome. And this is something that I see happening in the second chapter of Judges that we're looking at, going through the uh, book of Judges this summer. And last week we started and worked through uh, chapter 1 and into chapter 2, five verses. And what we saw is that last week, the, the first generation of the book of Judges, that they really had, they left business unfinished. They had kind of a, a halfway obedience. They, they, they obeyed in part. They did part of what they were supposed to do as far as uh, driving out the, the wicked Canaanites from the land. Uh, but, but they didn't go all the way. They didn't fully obey God and fully live out what they were supposed to. I mean, the generation before them under, under Joshua, they had been pretty faithful. And they had done the hard work of, of driving out, um, doing the initial phase of the conquest. But there was still the second phase to be done. And this first generation in Judges did a halfway effort. And now we're going to see what happens next to that, that second generation in the book of Judges. And what happens in their lives. So let's start reading. In chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 6. And for our first section here, the main point is going to be that the next generation did not know the Lord firsthand. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnahiras, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all the generations were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We're going to stop right there and talk about this. And I'll say what we're going to see as we read through this is we have a generation that, that comes after them, after Joshua and those that were still alive and remember and had been part of that and outlived Joshua. Most of them were, were younger than him. The second generation comes in and they're going to take things for granted. They're going to abandon the Lord. They're going to go after idols. And they're going to um, make the Lord unhappy with the choices that they make. So I'm going to look at some characteristics of this uh, new generation. And the first we'll see is that this new generation, that they did 
I'm going to need some help clicking here. So um, the first is that they did not know God personally. There's a difference between knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord. I mean, you, I'm sure, know about many celebrities. You and I, we, we know about the President of the United States, um, but I don't know the President of the United States. We don't know these celebrities and people that we see on TV. Sometimes we're uh, lured into this uh, false idea that we have a relationship with them just through seeing them on the news and on Facebook, but we don't really have a relationship with them. And I think it's easy sometimes for people to just know about the Lord. That's different than actually knowing the Lord. Knowing someone means you have knowledge of them, or knowing about someone means you have knowledge of them, but knowing someone means you have a relationship with them. You wouldn't say that you know someone unless you actually have a relationship with them. And let's face it, there are many people that they know about the Lord. Maybe they really know about the Lord. They've been coming to, to church their whole life. They've been going to Sunday school. There are people that, that teach in universities about Scripture. They may know a lot about the Lord, but knowing the Lord is something very different. And so I think we each need to ask ourselves, where, where are we? Are you someone that you know the Lord, that you have a relationship with him? Or is he just someone that you know about? Second, these people, first of all, they did not know God personally. They also had not experienced the Lord's work firsthand. So, that's what it says here in that last verse that they read. There was another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now again, they, they knew about the work that God had done. They, I'm sure, had heard the stories about how God delivered them from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And they would have even known some of the stories that their parents told them, God uh, parting the Jordan so they could cross into it, and God going before them and, uh, for the initial phase of driving out the Canaanites. But they didn't really know these things firsthand. They hadn't experienced this, and we're going to see because of that, they let that be something that makes their, their faith waver, that they abandon this. And, you know, I think there's times where that can be the same way with second-generation Christians. And I don't know where you're at as far as what generation you are. There are some people here that you're first generation. Maybe you come from a, a family background that um, it was not Christian at all that your parents did not know or serve the Lord, and somehow God got a hold of you and encountered you with his truth in the gospel, you turned to him and, and you were saved. And so you know firsthand the power of what it is to be delivered from just a lifestyle of, of sin, a lifestyle of turning away from God, and you, you think to yourself, if God hadn't rescued me, and if I had just gone the same way as my, my parents before me and grandparents and the family line, wow, my life would be a lot different. And you're thankful for this deliverance that you see firsthand God brought in your life. Other of us, you might be second-generation Christians where uh, your parents got saved out of sin, uh, but in a sense, you've, you've always grown up in the church. You've been raised in the church. This is something that we can kind of take for granted. And maybe you're third, fourth, or fifth generation. Now, on one hand, that's what we're hoping for. We hope 
that families are going to raise their kids to come and know the Lord. We hope that it, you are Christians and you're going to raise your children to still become Christians and to personally trust in Jesus Christ one day and be, and be saved. But there's always that danger for uh, those of us that are second or third or fourth generation Christians to just kind of assume that this is how it's always been. That maybe uh, the first generation Christians, they know what it's like to be brought out of just that, that evil lifestyle that they were in. And for those of us that have, have never known that, sometimes we don't appreciate that deliverance in the same way. Now, with these people, with the Israelites, yeah, they hadn't, these current ones, they hadn't experienced some of these big miracles. And we have to realize that the parents, they were supposed to tell about these miracles God wasn't saying that he was going to start, you know, parting the Red Sea for every generation to see this. So they were not supposed to have a type of faith that depended on that they have to be the one to see these extraordinary miracles in order to have faith. And if that's the kind of faith that, that we have, that God has to do something special beyond Scripture or else it's not good enough for us, well, th that's not how our faith should be with the extraordinary miracles, extraordinary but there is something even more powerful about, well, if, if some are extraordinary, the, the ordinary work of God. And let's face it, sometimes it's a tough word to use because when we say ordinary, it seems bland, it seems boring. But what we mean is God's normal way of working, the, this, the, the powerful but, but standard things that he does. And let me just say to you that these things, if you fully have recognized and experienced these things, personal salvation in your life. You know, maybe you've grown up as a Christian, you know, in, in, the, in the church your whole life, but you have to come to a place individually where you personally trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and where you experience that salvation from your sin firsthand. Other things that God is going to do in your life too where you personally firsthand experience his, his comfort in the difficult times where you experience God's faithfulness to you through the long haul, through difficult circumstances. And in a way, you could say, well, these, these are the ordinary things. They're the usual things. But these things are powerful. These are God working, in, and you need to experience that firsthand. Third, these people, they did not have to fight. Oh, i got to go back. Take me back one, please. Okay, these people did not have to fight for what they had. Look ahead here in the book of Judges to chapter 3. It says, Now these are the nations, starting with verse 1, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is in Israel, who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So part of the reason that when Joshua did his initial conquest, that there, were some, there was work left to be done, is God knew that the, the next generation still needed some battles to fight if they were really going to take ownership of this. And also, he knew that, well, back in those days, war was just a, it, it was a part of life. You had different nations and different tribes that were always trying to kill you. And unless you were prepared to defend yourself, uh, you, just, you just weren't going to make it. 
And so he knew that he had, a, he had this covenant promise with the nation of Israel. The Savior was going to come to them. They needed to not get wiped out. And part of what he needed to do was to toughen them up. And so he needed to give them challenges so that by meeting these challenges, they, they would appreciate what they have and they would be tough enough to, to survive. And so we saw that with the, the first generation in the book of Judges. But then you come to a point where, okay, they, they've conquered the people, they've uh, taken some people, and they were supposed to drive out, and they've made them into captives, into slaves. This next generation comes, and they, they kind of have it easy. They, really, they don't have to be fighting for what they have in the same way that their, their forefathers did. And it can be very easy when you don't have to work for something, when you don't have to fight for something, when it's just handed to you, to just take it for granted. To not appreciate it in the same way. One generation works hard for what they have. The next one sometimes comes in and just parties it away. And I think there's a lesson here for us also as, um, as second generation or third generation Christians. If you are in the church and you are a, a second generation Christian, to realize that there might have been things that some of the people that did the pioneering work of, of building a church, and when this church has been around 150 years, so none of us were totally around for all that time, uh, but for some that had to go through some, some, some difficult phases or to you know, construct building projects or to do different things or to, to get the church to where it is today. And when we just kind of step into it without having to put forth the work, sometimes it's easy to just take it for granted, take it or leave it, not appreciate it the way we should. And just like these people, maybe they thought that, well, their family heritage was enough that they were okay spiritually. And I think some of these tribes and people probably thought, hey, I'm okay. You know, my family conquered this land. But what about them? And it's the same way I think we also always need to be careful that we don't think, well, hey, I'm okay. You know, my family built this church. Well, that, that's great. But what about you? What's going to be your legacy? What's going to be what you add to things? Another thing that characterizes this generation, the fourth thing, is that they let themselves be influenced by the culture around them. Still in, uh, skipping ahead to chapter 3, it says at the end, it talks about the, um, the nations that were, that were left there. Verse 5, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, because they didn't drive them out the way they're supposed to, and so instead they're around, and they're being influenced by them, they're living in that, in that culture, and it says, And their daughters took to... And their, daughters, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So they intermarried with those around them. They absorbed their values, and they took on their practices. You know, maybe there was a point where they thought, well, we'll, we'll be a good influence on them, that this, this would be a good thing. But what really happened is they ended up absorbing the influence from those that were around them. I want to point out, too, the issue here, when it talks about taking on wives from these foreign, uh, foreign nations, 
the issue here is never actually about race. When the Bible commands against the Israelites taking on foreign wives, it was never actually about race. It was about religion. It was about worldview. What gods did they worship? Because there's another, another book. The next book in Scripture is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. And the book of Ruth is this, this beautiful story that happens during this dark time. And Ruth is, is not an Israelite. She's from Moab. And it's a story about how um, she uh, comes in and she um, ends up becoming uh, an, an Israelite, marrying into it. But she leaves her other gods behind. And she starts worshiping exclusively the God of Israel. So that's why that's different. But in this situation with most of these, these, these foreign wives, they were keeping their gods. They were keeping their worship and their values and their practices. And said so they were bringing those uh, very wicked and detestable things into the life of the nation of Israel and being a terrible influence. So the real issue with this intermarriage wasn't religion. And I would say the real issue for us too, it, it, it isn't what religion you have listed in your Facebook profile. The real issue is who do you love the most? And let me just say for, for young people or for those that are not yet married, as you're, you're looking for that spouse, that is the most important thing. Society's going to tell you everything else is, is important and the most important. And some of these people may look good. I'm sure some of these Canaanite you know, ladies, they were attracted to them because they probably looked pretty good and they were pretty exciting. But the values and what they love the most led them away from the Lord. Let me give you one big application from this section. First, no second generation merely inherits the lessons of their forefathers. It doesn't just get merely inherited and passed down the, the positive lessons. They have to learn it for themselves. So parents, those of you here that are Christian parents, we need to remind ourselves that just because you know and serve the Lord doesn't mean automatically that your children will. And kids, whether you're in here, whether you're five years old, whether you're 35, okay? And it doesn't matter if you're, you're, your mom is a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't matter if your father is a deacon or your father is a pastor. Just because your parents know the Lord and serve the Lord doesn't mean that you will. That is something that eventually you are going to have to decide. Who are you going to serve? You know, a lot of people go camping during this time of year, and some people have campers, and uh, there's some that, you know, have a motor, and you can just drive it. And there's others you have to, you know, hitch to the car or to the truck, and it gets pulled behind that. And I think a lot of times, children can be like, like a camper just being towed by the truck. And it's good that we bring them to school or to, to church. It's good that we put them in Sunday school. It's good that we do all these things. And maybe they're going to keep following the Lord and, and going on the right path as long as they're attached to that, to that truck. But what's going to happen in that point in life where it needs to, to decouple? Are they going to have their own engine, their own engine of faith that can propel them so that they're going to stay on the path and keep moving forward? Or are they going to decouple and, and have no engine of their own? We each need to ask that about our own lives and our own hearts as well. It needs to be a personal choice and a personal heart commitment. One commentator wrote, you discover the true nature of people by observing them when they are not bound by external restraints. 
Listen to me. If your parents were fully devoted to the Lord and you are half devoted, your children will lose the other half. Let's move on. Second main point is that Israel abandoned the Lord for an affair with idols. Let's go back to chapter 2. Start reading with verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out, brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands, hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So this is the, the situation that they had got themselves into. Remember too, the people, they had, they had sworn that they were going to obey the Lord. You have your scripture with you. You're in, in Judges here. Flip backwards to the, towards the end of Joshua. Happens right before this. And there's this, this speech that Joshua has with the people. Joshua chapter 24 Let's start reading verse, verse 14 here. He says, Joshua, to, to all the people, they, they've, towards the end of their initial conquest, and he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up out of the Father, brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Great, good answer. Glad they're thinking that. But then Joshua replies, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn to do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with his people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem 
And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the tabernacle that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. These people were in a covenant relationship with God. And you notice here, in, they keep saying, we will serve, the, we will do this. Miss, any of you ever have your kids ask for a dog? <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, or maybe you know, a different animal or you know, rabbit, whatever it is. And you're thinking, oh, this is going to be so much work. I'm going to take care of this. And you have that conversation with the kids. So well, if we get this dog, you've got to take care of it. Here's the things. You have to feed it. Okay, you have to clean up after it. And the, what do the kids say at this point? Oh, yes, we will do anything that you want. I will do that. I will, I will feed him. I'll take care of him. I'll clean up the, the, the mess. How long does that usually last? And his parents would kind of know, oh, yeah, you're saying this now. I know you are. But to me, that's what I think these people were like. Well, the first generation, you know, they had been more faithful, but it, it keeps going downhill. Second sub-point here is these people, well, first of all, they were unfaithful to the Lord and to their covenant with them. So they had this covenant relationship. They had this promises, these promises, but they, they betrayed this. And a covenant, marriage is a covenant. It's a sacred promise. And these, the Israelites were supposed to be God's people, supposed to be faithful to him in the same way that a husband and wife are supposed to be faithful. And so when they're breaking that covenant, making marriage covenants with, with other unbelievers and doing all these things, they're being unfaithful to the God that they were supposed to be in covenant with. And the second, it says that they did what was right. Well, it says back to the book of uh, Judges here, Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember last week, we talked about the verse at the end of Judges that said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But here, notice it says that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Whose eyes are we looking through when we try to judge different things? That we may have things that seem to be really good in our eyes, but how do they look in God's eyes? How are they in his sight? And one thing we've got to realize is that our sinful hearts, looking through our human eyes, we can, we can squint and make pretty much anything look right in our eyes. We have a really good uh, ability to do that, to make whatever we want, all of a sudden, yeah, that, lo- that looks good to me. But whose eyes are we really looking through and whose eyes really are the ones that matter. They also, they went after more tempting gods. It's the next bullet point, please. So they abandoned the Lord and they went after these, these false gods, Baals, Asheroth, and these others. And they go, why was, why was Baal worship, these other, worship of these other gods, so tempting to them? Isn't it just kind of a neutral choice between uh, different things? I can give you a, I think at least five reasons here why it was so tempting to them. This isn't going to be on the screen, but you can write it down. First, these gods were permissive. 
Okay, these gods, they didn't care if you slept around. They didn't care if you, if you got drunk and, and partied. They didn't have these righteous uh, expectations. You could, you could follow your desires and still worship these gods all you wanted. Two, these gods, they, they were exciting. And they appealed to people's urges. I mean, part of the worship of these gods, and, and we'll talk more about this tonight if you come back, because sometimes people have an issue with this, this whole conquest and driving out these people, and it seems like that just doesn't seem right to us. But I think we need to learn more about these Canaanites and their practices and how patient God was with them and really how wicked they were. So if that's an issue, I hope you come back tonight or I hope you get the audio if you can't make it. But part of their worship was what was called um, sympathetic religion. And the, the gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, were very, there's kids in here, they were very promiscuous. And part of uh, the religion that they have would be to, um, they thought that by, by humans being promiscuous with each other, uh, they would be pleasing the gods. And then the gods would send rain and do all this. So just rampant, just immorality and uh, very perverse acts were part of the worship. But you can see if, you're, if you have a sinful heart, you say, well, that sounds pretty exciting. That sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll go for that God. Not that, rather than the God that just wants me to be married to one person and be exclusive to that one person, this other religion is pretty exciting. And you can uh, have these uh, just ex experiential highs and crazy parties while you're worshiping. Third thing, these gods were tolerant of other gods. You know, they didn't care if you were exclusive. You could worship them. You could, you could worship the Lord on the side or Baal and Ashtaroth and whoever you wanted to. Four, these gods promised practical immediate benefits. And they thought, well, hey, you wanna, you're in this new uh, land and you've got to start farming the land and doing all this. Their forefathers, they didn't have to farm it. I mean, when, before, when they were slaves in Egypt, you know, Pharaoh... Uh, fed them, and when they were in the desert, uh, the Lord God provided food for them. So they're coming in, and they're like, okay, we got to learn how to be farmers. And so, hey, let's get some tips from, from the people that had been here. They said, well, if you want it to rain, and you need, you need the rain, you better worship these things so that our gods here, Baal and Ashtaroth, that they do what's necessary to make it rain. So they probably thought, well, this is just what you need to do to survive. This is just there's practical benefits and it's just what you have to do. And then five, we've mentioned this already, but the Israelites, they were influenced by the pagan people and they were, that they were attracted to and that they married. And let's just point out that Satan knows how to use sexual attraction to, to pull you away from your allegiances. And I think we see that so many of these same things, so many of these, these same poles are, are here today. What makes other religions or other worldviews besides God see so, seem so appealing to so many people. Other worldviews where, yeah, you're not confined. You can, you can do these exciting things. You can follow your urges. If you just trade in the God of the Bible for some other kind of handmade, man-crafted God instead that will allow you to do what you, what you want to do. So God's anger was provoked. In verse 12, excuse me, in verse uh, 14, says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You know, it literally reads, the, Yahweh's nose became hot against Israel. 
That's the literal reading of, of the Hebrew. All the things that they had disobeyed, they were supposed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Deuteronomy 7.12 told them to do that. But they didn't. Instead, they, they enslaved people instead. Deuteronomy 12.3, they're supposed to destroy the Canaanite places of worship. Judges 2, 1 through 6, they, did, they didn't. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, they're supposed to teach their children about the Lord. Well, it says here the next generation did not know him. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 said they were not supposed to intermarry. Judges 3, 5 through 8, they, they intermarried. God was angry with them. God's anger, it's real. It's not like our anger, but it is real. God's anger, it's, it's not without cause. And it's the way he expresses his anger, it's carefully measured. He, has, he doesn't fly off the handle, but when we got it coming, we have it coming. And God's anger has terrible consequences for those who are the objects of it. Let's give me, let me give you one, another application from this section. It means don't be unfaithful to the Lord by going after the false gods around you. There's so many tempting things in our culture as well, too. And we're called to, to live in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. And we have to be very careful that the world doesn't start seeping in to our lives. Don't underestimate the lure of temptation. And remember that God keeps us from some things because he just knows that we just are too weak to handle it. And finally, this last section here that we're going to look at talks about the cycle of the judges. Let's read this starting verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges, those who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed their commandments, the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, have not obeyed their voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So we have here what's uh, called the, the cycle of the judges. And this is going to be a pattern we're going to see through the rest of this whole book. This just keeps happening over and over and over. See, people that don't learn from history will repeat it. And we're going to see this cycle over and over with these different judges, these military rulers that God is going to raise up. So if, if you're filling this out in your bulletin, you'll see the, uh, the first phase here, the top, is that Israel, first they serve the Lord. So they're serving the Lord, they're obeying him, things, things are good. But then they get tempted, and then Israel falls into slavery, into, excuse me, into sin, into idolatry. They abandon the Lord, they go after these false gods. Then the anger of the Lord is kindled against them. 
and Israel's enslaved. God sends these enemies. Now let me ask you, is, is your theology big enough to say, to re recognize that this is, this is God directing this to happen as, as chastisement for their actions? Uh, that God sends these nations and they oppress the people. Israel is enslaved. But then finally, and sometimes this takes a while for them to cry out, but Israel cries out to the Lord. And then in response to that, to their crying out, to their groanings, God raises up a judge. Let me talk about this for a second. A judge, don't think of uh, you know, Judge Judy sitting there behind the, behind the desk here. This judge, this is a, uh, a military leader, a deliverer. And that's what these judges are that we're going to be looking at starting next week. We're going to hit three of them next week. Some great stories for Father's Day. Looking forward to this. In the book of Judges, there's 12 that are listed. Uh, some don't get a lot of space, uh, but there's 12. Plus, if you go into the book of Samuel, Eli and Samuel are listed as judges as well. It's interesting, too, in the book of Judges, there's 12. There's 12 tribes. And these, these judges seem to be dispersed among the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. It seems that there's one from each one, each ruling sometimes in different areas. And I point that out too because that's important because sometimes, well, there's an issue here. If you look at the dates for this, and you, we can learn from Scripture what the dates would be from the actual book of Judges after Joshua dies to the end would be about from the year 1326 B.C. to 1092 B.C. So that's about 234 years. Now, the problem is, if you take the judges and how long they reign and how long the peace is, and you add them all up, it comes out to more than that. So the, the solution is to realize that there's probably overlapping judgeships. That, you know, Israel was a pretty big area, especially back then when you don't have internet and you don't have cars. And probably you might have one judge ruling for a while in, in the south, and then in the north, you know, different things are happening. So there's some overlapping of the judges, and that's probably what accounts for this and, and makes it fit into place. And we said last week, these judges are deeply flawed, yet it's important to realize that the four of these judges, they actually make it into the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 11:32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign enemies to flight. So the last part of the is that Israel serves uh, the Lord. And it says they would serve as long as that judge lived. And then after they were decoupled from that judge, they went on their own. Applications, which is on the next slide. Slavery or sin leads to slavery. Okay, so compromise leads to consequences. It happened with them. We might not get conquered by a foreign power, although who knows. But in our lives, we can have become slavery to other things. Slavery to, to addictions, to habits, to sinful consequences. But desperation comes before deliverance. These people got desperate enough, they cried out to God. They had to realize that they were at the end. They couldn't do this on their own. 
They needed something else. They could not deliver themselves. I think God will not help us until we are desperate. You can't even trust Jesus Christ as your Savior if you're still trying to save yourself. You need to give up on trying to do that. You do not have the power and the ability to save yourself. But God has sent the ultimate Savior, the ultimate judge, the perfect judge for us in Jesus Christ. This chapter really has so much about the grace of God, grace in the face of sinful betrayal, grace coming from God's compassion, grace that that persists. Remember, Joshua had warned the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. We need a Savior that would come and live the perfect life that we we just can't live. And that's what Jesus did in our place. We need a Savior that would come and die in our place because we could not do that. And notice it said that the people would serve as long as that judge lived. Well, our ultimate judge has already died, and he has been raised to life, and he will reign forever. And so let us serve him as long as our Savior lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you And we admit our weakness. We admit our lack of strength and that we cannot serve you by our own power, Lord God. And so we ask for your grace. We ask for your compassion and mercy. And we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our great judge and savior and rescuer, and for what he did in our place. And God, help us to serve you as long as Jesus Christ reigns, and that is forever. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Stand and let's uh, sing and exclaim our acknowledgement of our desperation for him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name.